time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. Hey, this is Lee Balkum, and this is the Thrivology Podcast, where we talk about how to thrive and sometimes talk to interesting people who have figured out how to thrive. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Kishol Choksi. He is a successful entrepreneur and also a new author, but he also learned how to work through breathwork and meditation to build a thriving life. He started his career in New York, worked as a quantitative analyst for Goldman Sachs, and then he left there, did some asset management, moved on from that to many other places where he was chasing that adrenaline rush. And then he had the event of 20 years ago of 9-11 that changed everything, turned everything on its head. Since then, he's been trying to figure out how to have deeper meaning, deeper significance, and has done some outstanding work, both in how to do that with meditation, but also in his business and his personal life. We're going to talk about all of that today. So uh, let's turn now and uh, listen in as I have a chance to have a very interesting discussion with Kashal. Kashal, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to talk with you. I want to hear a little bit about where you were in 2000. What was going on in life in 2000? Thanks for having me here, Lee. Uh, excited to talk to you. 2000 was a defining moment for me because that's the first time in my life I came to New York City. Hmm. I came to the United States as an immigrant. Uh, I went to school in Pittsburgh and um, bushy tail and wide eyed, I ended up in New York City uh, in year 2000 just to live the American dream. What was the American dream going to be? <laughs> what did you imagine? Well, I really um, was enamored by the um, so-called charm of, of Wall Street. Mm. Um, that brought me here. And um, I got a job working on a trading desk um, on Wall Street. So I guess my world was colored by what I had seen then, mm-hmm. which was hyper successful people, um, you know, perhaps a little stress, but it was not showing on them. But it seemed like they were living the life and I wanted to do just that. Yeah. So where did your office end up? I was in downtown Manhattan. Uh, I used to work at a building called 32 Old Slip. So it's right on the lower uh, lower Manhattan by the uh, South Street Seaport. Uh, yeah. So let's, that's 20 years ago. Let's, let's fast forward to those 20, exactly 20 minutes, 20 years ago. Um, let's talk about where you were September 2001. September 2001, um, it was an interesting morning because I was late to work that day. And as soon as I got off the train, um, which was in the bowels of the World Trade Center, um, I came up and I realized that I was late. I had to rush that. I had a lot of thoughts in my head. Um, And right around when the first plane hit the South Tower, I was very much in the World Trade Center building, the, mm. right in the middle of the mezzanine floor, trying to get my way to the work. And it was part of my daily commute. There was, I had a lot of memories with that building. Um, the first three months of my, uh, my career, I actually worked in the World Trade Centers. Um, so it was, I had seen that building, I had a different kind of bonding with that, the heights of that building and the rest of the city, but I had never imagined a moment like that, which I would endure that I saw in that, on that day. I don't think anybody imagined it. I mean, I, you know, I think if anybody uh, was alive at that point, I mean, there may be some younger listeners that were not, but for those of us who were alive, lived through that from a distance, um, you know, I remember that moment. I was in my therapy office, and uh, we were in—I was in a building that uh, uh, another group was using. And I walked out between and realized this group was transfixed by something. And um, and it was a just as things had happened. You know, for the first airplane. So um, I remember it, and I wasn't anywhere near there. So wh- what was? Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you were you're in the mezzanine, so you couldn't see it happen. What? What was the experience like inside? So it was like in one second, the whole world had changed. There was a point in time where Earth was spinning as normal. Everybody was 
going about their, you know, the New York, New York minute. They're just, you know, rushing to work with, with their coffee in one hand, newspaper in the other. It was just like a, a, a normal scene from every day. And there was a loud deafening noise, very big noise, like a big bang. And suddenly in that moment, the world pivoted. No one knew what that was, but the sound was so loud that it silenced all the chatter in my mind for a split second. I was just like, what just happened? And suddenly it felt like the whole, that swath of commuters, the crowd was, was gripped in that, that fear of something, fear of the unknown, if you may. That's probably the fear of death because suddenly someone shouted that there's a bomb that's gone off. Of course, no one knew what it was, but probably it was in the, in the panic, someone just said a bomb has gone off. And that was just enough to create a pandemonium, a create like people running in all different directions, not knowing what to do. Someone was going back to work. Someone was going up the stairs. Someone was going out through the door. It was just very confusing. I, I still remember um, there was one, you know, in, in, in the mad rush out of the door, there was one poor woman who, who, who slipped and, and fell on the ground. And usually men would just, you know, give her a hand, you know, give her, you know, give her some support to get back on the feet. That was, they, were, they were almost trampling over her and, and, you know, stepping on her and going up. It was not the, the, the humanity or, or life I have ever seen uh, in, in my entire, you know, 20, 25 years before. And so it was a lot for my senses to, to perceive in, in, in that short two minute of time. It's interesting. You, you talked about the, the, all the different things that people were doing, right? I mean, none of it, it was not like everybody went, oh, we've got to get out of here. You know, you said somebody tried to go back to work and yes. uh, other people were returning to whatever they were doing. And then there were some people who were panicking and, and running around, which is, I think, pretty typical for a fearful response. You know, everybody's trying to figure out and some people are, it's just so out of the ordinary that oh, time to go to work, whatever that was. Right. We'll just go on back to work. What was your response? I started walking towards the, the, the door. Um, I was no different in that sense. I thought perhaps the safer place would be my work building. So I should just go there and, and hibernate. Maybe it would, it would, shield me from what's going around here. I had no idea what had really happened in that moment. So I went out the door. I went out the door and I very distinctly remember there was a security person right at the, at the main entrance um, and who was requesting people, who was cajoling people to go back to your desks or stay inside. Wow. Go back and stay in the middle of the building, in the center of the building. Because it was, if you looked out of, out of the, the big glass doors, it was scary. It was like from the apocalypse movies. It was like splinters of glass and, and cement chips and, and, and insulation from the walls. It was like raining. It was a constant rain of all these things in a, in a very scary gray haze. And so perhaps he was doing the right thing uh, in, in, in that moment, out of care, asking people to go inside and stay in the building, in the center of the building, so that you don't get exposed to these elements. Um, and in that moment, someone tapped me on my shoulder and said, no, no, you need to get out. Let's just go. This is not right. I listened to it and I just ran out. Wow. I mean, this is, it's one of those things that I always think about where anybody reacts to that. And so you have a person in authority who is kind of in charge saying, you know, go back in and somebody else saying we need to leave. And you chose to leave. What was that? That voice was so strong. There was such conviction in that voice that I felt that that, that voice had more authority than this person in the blue jacket was telling me. Mm -hmm. I, I do know, and I saw a few people turning back around. I, I can only imagine. I do know that they went back inside. But in that moment, in that fight or flight kind of impulse, I, I just chose to go out. And when I went out, it was for a second, I, I felt, did I make the right choice? Because it was harrowing what I saw of me. 
there was, uh, of course, the emergency responders were kind of making a file to go back into the building. Firefighters had already lined up to go in. Um, you know, all these media had, was already beginning to show up. Um, but the worst thing that I, ex I experienced in that moment was to see people, you know, jumping down from the higher floors to end it all willfully. Um, and that was, that's some impression that I still carry in my nervous system. Mm -hmm. um, just to not see that I wish I had not, I had not come out. Um, but yeah, it, it was, a, I, I just, I was frozen. I, I went out and I, was, I didn't know what had happened. And I, I looked up and there was a big gaping hole in the, um, in, in, the, in the North Tower. And at that time it was evident that a plane had hit the building, but nobody knew why. I mean, when I used to work on the higher floors of World Trade Center, um, they would always see the planes going down on the glide path to LaGuardia. And we would think, oh, you know, that's how they go. And I, I, in that moment, I thought perhaps a, an aircraft made a wrong left turn or what, what happened? I, mean, I was just trying to process all that, even imagining what could have gone wrong in, in that moment for a plane to come and hit. And as I'm looking upstairs, uh, uh, I'm looking up to the building and that's when another plane comes and just rams into the, into the South Tower. Wow. And, you know, spitting out a huge fireball on the other side, which kind of started raining on us where, from where, where, we were, um, where we were standing. And at that point, I knew there was something more than uh, what was evident. You know, there was, there was some deliberate act of, of uh, you know, attack here. And that's when I, I just dashed. You know, it's it, the, something that nobody could imagine at that point. And, and I think that's the, the thing. I, I know a lot of people, I've talked to a lot of people who uh, postulate what they would have done you know, if had they been there, what, what would they have done? And, and, um, I think that we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, you know, that we would have had some wisdom to, but that was such an inconceivable, as you said, you saw the planes on a regular basis, you know, flying around. And so the first thing you, you go, Oh, someone made a mistake. The interesting thing is even in that moment, some piece of your brain trying to figure out what was going on was stopping you from getting further away from the danger. It was. I mean, as stupid as it may sound, sound like, I almost thought like, and of course, this is 2001, right? There are no smartphones at that time. So I even thought like, what is this? You know, should I just film it for the poster? Like, what do I do? Like, you know, should I go buy a camera and film it? It was like, I'd never seen something like that. And so mine was just completely in a state where it was ready to make irrational decisions in a spur of a moment. Mm. Um, I don't think I was, I was thinking straight in that moment. I, you know, unfortunately I had forgotten my phone at work the prior day. So I, I just tried to borrow a phone from a stranger um, and, and tried to call uh, my family who of course I couldn't reach because the, the phone, phone network had just collapsed. Um, and, you know, it was just, I wasn't sure what I was, I was doing in that moment. I, and for another, for a few moments, I, I went and just stood there staring at, at the, the black fumes coming up and just imagining what was going on in, in that moment. And even though there was, you know, nobody really knew who was responsible for this. How did this happen? Um, there was nobody to talk to. There was no TV that, I mean, no access to the television or anything in that moment. So it was just, just guesswork. Yeah. I, you know, I've been, I've not been at anything at that level, but I've been at several um, critical incidents in my life. And, and I've always watched that, you know, there's the, in our fear response, fight, flight, freeze. And in that moment, you watch somebody run towards whatever caused it. You watch somebody run away from it and you watch another group who are just not sure what to do. And they stare and try to, you know, kind of figure it out. And it strikes me that you've described all three of those happening. Um, and some of those for you, you know, do I run back in, do I run away? Do I try to figure this out? All three of those can happen, you know, to, to people simultaneously almost. And, um, and that la leaves a lasting impression for you. I mean, just thinking about those images. So after that, 
um, I'm sure the next bit of time was just a haze for you. How did you make sense of what had happened and where you had been and how close you had been? Yeah, and at that point in time, I just, right after that, I just had dashed towards the, the East River, towards where I used to work. And, you know, at that point, I knew I had to just get out. I, I, I was, there was a strong voice from within that was just telling me that I just needed to get off the island. I don't know why I thought that. Um, and so there was a, it was interesting, there was a, a ferry, a commuter ferry that was pulling out of Pier 11. There's a little, little slip there. And I just, I just ran towards it as I saw it. And on the, as I was running towards it, the, the North Tower started crumbling down and started collapsing. So it was that you probably had, have seen in some, some footage where it's like the cloud of dust and smoke just, just coming and, and, and enveloping everything that's coming in its way, just, just kind of gobbling everything, just moving like that. So it was like that moment where I see this, this cloud of dust and smoke is coming towards me and I'm, I'm running away from it. And I just jumped on that ferry, that little commuter boat that was pulling out. And, you know, I, I turned around and looked at it and that, that angry cloud of smoke and dust had just covered the entire New York City skyline. I could not see a single building. And here I just, I was just, you know, floating on the water, just moving away from it. And there was another, you know, a reminder of just complete lack of um, coherence. I, I didn't know what was really happening, but something from within me was just guiding me towards going somewhere. I didn't even know where that ferry was going to. I just jumped on it. It was going to some Beehawk in New Jersey. But I just jumped on it, and when I, as as the ferry turned around, um, we were by on the Hudson now, and that's when we saw the the other building, other tower just collapse in front of our eyes. And in that moment, I was like, so close yet so far, and I I realized I had become a I had become a statistic now. Hmm. I had become a nine eleven survivor. Um, yeah, I, and that was a when I was on the ferry, I saw the building collapse. That's when I realized that I, I just had that, that kiss of death. I was so close to it. Um, had I listened to that, that security person, you know, I, I would have been inside the building. God knows what would have happened. I mean, just multiple places. If you'd listened to that person, um, if you had stood there and tried to figure it out any longer or you know, tried to find another phone to take footage or anything could have delayed you. If you had not gone in the right direction, so many things um, that, and, and that's the thing that I, I think we underestimate are those split second decisions that made the difference for people of, of which side of the statistics they made it to. Absolutely. So you get away, you're now in New Jersey and I'm sure making, trying to make your way back to family. How did you process all of that? Or did you process it at that time? I had no idea what I was doing. I was just, I was just moving. Like just my body was navigating, but my mind was not there. You know, it was, I, I, all the modes of transport had of course come to a, a standstill. So I just had to walk a long way um, to get to my family. But um, when I, get to, when, when I got to home, uh, got, got to my apartment, um, I met, I saw my roommate who had his own version of 9-11 um, from across the river in Jersey City. And in that moment, I realized that there was a, this was one event where everyone had had their own 9-11. You probably in that moment had something from, from the family office where you were, you were stuck and you saw this my roommate had from his office when he saw the plane, somebody was stuck somewhere. Everybody had their own 9-11 that had happened to them. And I, I felt this, this whole collective grief that, that had kind of enveloped the, the entire country. You know, nobody was talking about it. People were, you know, it's like as if the, the wind had stood still. There was, there was a burning stench in the air. Um, it was it was very uh, it was very apocalyptic in that moment. It was very, that's, I never 
experience or never seen something like that, that, that how, how the air looked, how the light was in that moment. So I was just, just dazed. I, my fa- I, I finally connected with my family um, and, and told them I was okay, but I couldn't even hold a, a conversation. You know, I was, I just wanted to be, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm good. Bye. Um, and in the days that followed it, you know, once, once I was past that, that initial shock, there was a very interesting kind of dichotomy that, that I began to, to experience, you know, on one side, I was very thankful that um, I had a new lease of life. Um, I had to, um, and now that, that I had more time to do what I had to do, I needed to do it with all the more gusto and I needed to get it and do it all and now do it even faster and, and you know, live that American dream even, even bigger um, because, you know, this was my second chance. But while I was on one side, I was planning towards it. On the other side, there was this, this thought from the back of my mind, which was constantly nagging saying, but then what's the point of this? You know, is this what you're really here to do? And what if something like this were to happen again and you're not so lucky the next time? You know, if the curtains are drawn again, halfway, why are you just running after all these things? What's the point? So it's a very interesting kind of conflict that was raging in my mind on one side, wanting to do certain things and on the other side thinking, but what's the point? Mm. So you take a, you have a second chance. Um, I call it from, from my own experience of having had a health crisis, I call it my bonus time, right? I mean, it, so you have this bonus time, second chance, whatever you want to refer to it, but it, it, there's this place where you're holding the old self, you know, I have this second chance to do my old self. And then there is this emerging new self saying, yeah, but what does it matter? And so some people would go stubbornly towards the old self again. I'm just, this just means I need to be more successful and start more companies and, you know, whatever else. And then that other voice is calling usually for something deeper, something more meaningful. Um, how did you, how did you deal with those two battling selves? Truth be told, I did not know how to deal with it. I really struggled. There was a part of me uh, that, that wanted to really go after things. And then the other part of me was just not interested. I was not lazy. I was not depressed. I was just disinterested. There was a, there was a feeling of what's the point. And mm-hmm. that created a void in, in, in me, right? Like that hole in the soul type of thing that I, it, it's, it kept me thinking that there had to be more to life than what meets the eye. You know, it, it prompted me to think that um, what, what I'd been doing all my life was a result of some conditioning. What I was doing, I was, what I was behaving, the way I was carrying myself, the way I was chasing things, the way I was running after A or B was because the world expected me to do that. It wasn't that it was, I was really passionate about it, but I just knew that that was the thing to do. Because if I did that, and if I did that successfully, I would be rewarded in the eyes of the world. So Kishal, if I could push just a little bit, when you say the world, it, it wasn't, you, you took that, I mean, the world, as far as I can tell, the world doesn't care about an individual. You know, if I'm not saying something and I'm not doing something, nobody notices it. They don't notice my absence. So that the world ends up often being um, ourselves or our family or our friends, or, you know, uh, it's a smaller group that we have internalized. A, a world in a much narrower sense, the mm-hmm. world in sense of, um, of my, my circle, my immediate circle, or the people I work with. I used to work in such an alpha culture where, where you know, aggression was rewarded. Mm-hmm. You know, success was rewarded um, based on how, you know, fast and furious you were. Um, at some point of time, I did not connect with it, but I did not know any better. And I thought, no, no, this was it. If you are here, if you're working on Wall Street, you have to be part of this. You have to 
you know, you have to subscribe to it, otherwise you're left behind. So in that moment, perhaps it was the first time I began asking those questions that, is that really what I'm here to do? Is this really what I want? Is that really, does, do all these things really connect with me? Mind you, I didn't have an answer to that. It was just these questions that kept coming. My guess is, I mean, just because the whole world went into a pause mode, especially the financial world was on pause for that time. You had at least a little bit of time to ask the question, am I going to go back to doing what I was doing? And how, how long did that take for you to decide what you were going to do? You know, it was, I kept asking that question, but I did not have an answer to that. It, I did not find an answer to that. All the, all the signs kept pointing me that, oh yeah, I need to go back and, and, and do that. But then there was something that says, no, this way. And so to get rid of that feeling, I began distracting myself. It was, it was a very uncomfortable feeling. You know, when some, some things like there's a little thing in your eye and you can't get, get it out of your eye, you can't even look at anything, you can't enjoy a beautiful sunset. It was that kind of feeling that, you know, at one level, I was progressing so well in my career. I had everything I wanted. I was really enjoying my job. But there was something within me, you know, I was thinking, but then what's the point, right? Mm -hmm. So, to get rid of that feeling, I did what I knew what to do, which was in that moment, distract myself. And how did I distract myself? I tried doing crazy things. I tried, I took up traveling. I, I took up traveling to the most remote corners of the world, totally off the beaten track, going on the, you know, going to the Amazon forest or going to the, you know, the, the, the Andes mountains in Patagonia. I, taking on really challenging hikes and mountain climbs. And, and I thought that would fulfill me. I, I thought that would answer my, you know, that in there I would somehow find myself and, and have an answer and come back with it. But it didn't last. You know, every time I go, I, I enjoy it. But then when I come back, that nagging feeling kind of rises again. I, I even quit my job. I thought, you know, this was not what I, I wanted to do. I should... You know, this nine to five is probably very stereotypical. So I should do a, I should join a startup and experience some thrill on the professional front. So to just do that, I, I, I left my very promising career and joined a, a startup. And, you know, I, I kind of tried everything, but at the end, I kept coming back to that, that same feeling. Once that the newness of that thrill would end, once that charm would end, I would come back again to that same void and keep asking myself, no, this was not it. What's next? I just kind of wonder if there is some connection between having been through, I mean, there, there is no way to have not been overwhelmed with adrenaline on 9-11. And then the way you try to find your way back was to chase adrenaline. Yes. You know it's that typical fallacy of, of shifting your mindset. And how do you do it? And the easiest solution that, that people use or that I that was known to me was some sort of external stimulus, some sort of thrill that could shift my mind from the ordinary, shift my mind from what was stuck. You know, it's very easy to say, you know, change your mindset, move to something else, move to something more fulfilling. But how do you really do it? Mm -hmm. How do you tell your mind to stop thinking about something, stop doing one thing and move to the other? It's a very frontal cortex activity, right? It's a very effort activity. It, it requires a lot of effort. And one thing you know is the mind doesn't work with effort. And if you tell your mind to say, hey, close your eyes and don't think about it. Yeah. That's exactly what's going to pop up in your mind. Don't think of that pink elephant. There it is. <laughs> yeah. and the only thing that pops up is, you know what? Yeah. I, it just, it occurs to me that um, you know, as, as tragic as 9-11 that day was, there was probably also a piece of you that never felt more alive having barely made. I mean, it makes you aware of having survived and being alive and all of that bound up. 
sounds like you were chasing feeling alive. Yeah. I think Lee, you, you, you brought a, a very interesting point. And I, I see that whole aspect of me come about in a different way. Um, and I see it with many others after pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, a pandemic to me brought back the same feelings, although in a somewhat muted form, in a, in a different way, different texture that I felt after 9-11. That people began questioning the, the status quo, right? People began questioning what was, what am I really doing here? And people changed their homes, people moved geographical locations, people changed jobs, you know, started families, stopped, moved out of relationships. All that happened. And to me, it, it had a very similar undertone or very similar undercurrent to what I had experienced right after 9-11. So whether it's it's being alive or or seeking a change to to get rid of that that discomfortable or uncomfortable feeling that you are you have in your head, I, I think it's it's the same human pattern, it's the same behavior that that pushes us there in that mm-hmm. direction. Yeah. In fact, I think that I've said for a while, you know, what happened after the uh, 1918 pandemic was the Roaring Twenties, and and that to me that is people going. Oh my gosh, I'm alive, but trying to feel alive, you know, trying to find some, some semblance that there's something else. And, and many times chasing the something else that's not particularly fulfilling. You know, you, you, you keep trying to find it. And for the moment, it felt good, but long term, it doesn't. And, and so you were on that journey, realized that the trips weren't doing it, the experiences weren't doing it, the startup wasn't doing it. Um, I know the startup you you sold, I mean, that was, you exited that. So um, that sounds like there was at least either a built-in method of, of getting out or intentional. Um, but how did you follow that up? I mean, you can't keep doing that. You can't keep doing the adrenaline jump. So what did you do instead? You're so right, you can't. It's very, very exhausting. And to get, you know, and it's like a, a, a self-perpetuating. The more it doesn't work, the, the stronger you go at it. That's an addiction. It's an addiction. Yeah. It's, it's no different than an addiction. Totally. Um, but what helped me break that, that vicious cycle is a one chance encounter in New York City um, with a spiritual teacher who was traveling from India, who was teaching breathwork and meditation. Mm. I was very reluctant. I was not interested at all to, to subscribe to any kind of, um, you know, these alternate ways of, of, of coping with things. And, and, and mind you, this is early 2000, right? There were, there were no apps talking about meditation. There are no influencers or there are no people really spreading the awareness about breathwork and meditation and you know it, it was considered for people who are out there you know mm-hmm. it was not something that you really it was really well embraced in that that point and i'm like you know my in my limited awareness i thought meditation and and breathwork and all those things were anti-ambition it can it it can slow you down. Uh, it can make you disinterested in life and wasting that so time, hard. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> wasting your time with your eyes closed and breathing. What's that yeah. about? <laughs> What's that about? And, and I, was, I was like, okay, a pursuit for when I retire, not, not for now. Um, of course, looking back, you know, it was, it was, I was absolutely, uh, you know, wrong, but what did I know at that time? And so I resisted it, but this friend of mine kind of pushed me into it. Uh, forcefully and when I experienced that 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 breath work I learned this breath work technique called sky breath and I experienced it for the first time I distinctly remember my my peak experience right after that was the first time in so many years I'd experienced a state of mind without thoughts Mm. for the first time ever for extended period of 20-25 minutes there was a a very settled state of mind. There were no thoughts, nothing was bothering me. My mind was not going, thinking about this, you know, worrying about that. It was just there in the moment. 
And before that, I'd read a lot about to shift your mindset, you need to be in the present moment. You, know, you need to you know, be in the moment. The past is a, is a dream. The future is not here. What you have is the moment. But how do you, how do, you do that? I struggled to, to, to be in the moment all this time. And when I experienced that, then I realized, ah, this is what they talk about. This is what they, they, they fill the books with. Um, it's, it was an, an intellectual concept. For the first time, it became a very tangible experience. Experiential. Very experiential. But I was very questioning, a very left brain data-driven guy. I was, I was like, but why is it working? Now, of course, I kept doing it for some time because I was feeling good, but that didn't stop me from questioning it. I, I questioned it whether it was a, really something in there. Was this a placebo effect? What was it? You know, there's, there, was, there was research and all that, but I had not really come away. It was not right out there. And so I started digging deeper into it. And I, when I came through the research, when I saw the research, the research and the experience that, that kind of met and they came together, then I, I was convinced that, yes, there is something in it, which I want to experience more. I want to explore deeper. Yeah, it's, it's always intriguing to me that um, when we have those moments of not thinking, it's like flow experience, right? When people tell me they got into flow experience and, and I've had the same thing, I'm, I'm moving along and I go, oh, I'm in flow. And as soon as you go, oh, I'm in flow, you're no longer in flow. It's kind of like, oh, I'm not having any thoughts. Well, now I'm having thoughts. <laughs> we end it. So, and it's, it's almost like those experiences are in the moment and yet we don't notice them until we're out of them. So talk some, you, you mentioned the sky breathing. What, what is that? Um, so sky breath is just um, a simple breathing technique which uses the rhythms of your own breath to quieten your own mind, hmm. and to, to connect you with yourself. You know, we, we always talk about, oh, you know, you, you need to connect that gut feeling. You need to connect with yourself to who you really are. But who, we really, who are we really? I mean, do we really know? Are we this body? Are we this mind? Are we these emotions, these feelings? Are we the, 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 our thoughts? You know, are we our, the labels that we put on ourselves? Hmm. A husband, a meditator, an entrepreneur? Are we all that? What, what, who we really are? You know? And when I tried practicing it, I realized that within each of us, there is that quiet space that space from which the creativity springs, the space from which um, it's, it's, a, it's a source of being joyful. It's a source of peace and, and absolute calm. And this practice, this technique helped me connect to that source. And I'm, I was like, this is great. Every day I can just spend 20 minutes, go back to that space, you know, kind of recharge and then go back and, and, and enjoy the world. So it was, it was a very complimentary to, to what I wanted to do. And what I really liked about it is it was, it didn't require me to, um, you know, it, it was, it didn't require me to give up anything. It, it didn't require me to say, oh, because you're doing this, you, you cannot do that. And it was that, what now I know is a very ancient wisdom, but it's kind of packaged in very contemporary lifestyle, you know, the current, what, current world. And so I was like, this is it. And I, I kept practicing it um, as I went along. It's interesting how, how much our, um, I, I, I know that uh, James Nestor has talked about your book and uh, had him uh, as a guest on the podcast. Your breathing is such a fundamental thing that I don't think people realize how transformational it can be. I was talking with a client and I was trying to get him to do some easy breath work stuff, just belly breathing and, and calming breaths. And he just kept discounting it. And I said, you know, what do you have to lose? You got to breathe anyway. Why don't you just you know, change it a little bit? And there's so many different techniques that uh, bring us into that place where um, breathing can be transformational. I'm not, a, I, I was not familiar until, work with sky breath but 
so many techniques that people discount the power of, and yet it's the one part of our automatic autonomic system that we can choose to, you know, take off autopilot and, and do it ourselves. And, and for you, that was the walk back. So I, you don't have to uh, go too much into the details of the technique because there, uh, uh, we want to talk about later how people can learn more, but how did that change for you? I mean, here you came out of this very traumatic event and your whole life was wrapped up in this uh, achievement mindset that finally you realized was a part of the self that now we're questioning, what is that self? What is, what is that anyway? And you move to this deeper place. So where did that leave you? I mean, we're, we're here talking about thriving. What did that look like for you? You know, for me, it was just a, a happening. It was something that really happened at, in its natural due course. And now looking back, now that I've studied it a lot more, I've, there's so much research, including James Nestor, and you, you brought it up. Actually, if you read his book, The Breath, he talks about it was a sky breath, also known as Sudarshan Kriya, the Sanskrit word, that got him started on this path that triggered his journey um, somewhere in San Francisco many years ago. Uh, so what I realized when I look back uh, and when the research kind of corroborated with it is first thing that the sky breath does within just two weeks of its practice, it reduces the production of that serum cortisol, the, the stress hormone or the grief hormone by almost 56% in our bodies. So that's the natural happiness feeling that you get from inside. You know, sometimes you feel happy without a reason. You know, you just feel, okay, you're that flow state you're talking about, right? What, what inhibits this flow state is this chemical imbalances, mainly coming out of, you know, cortisol, the, the stress hormones. That, that come in our body. The second thing that it does at a much subtler level is it helps release these impressions. You know, it's like every life experience that we go through leaves an impression. For me, as I was talking about that, that, that image of people jumping down, holding hands and jumping down up from the 80th floor had left such a deep, deep impression in me that I could wake up from my sleep and, and, and see that, you know, that would wake me up in the night. But what the sky breath does is through just the action of our own breath releases these impression from our nervous system. When these impressions keep accumulating, they create stress in the nervous system. They give us an excuse for the mind to jump out of the present moment. Just think about it. You, you, you like coffee. The first day you, you have a cup of coffee. You, oh, wow, this is amazing. The second day you want coffee. Third day, now it's become a pattern. You know, that impression of the coffee has created a pattern in your subconscious. The fifth day, you don't get coffee, you're miserable. Because you're, you're, there's a certain conditioning in which, through which you walk. And when you don't get that, that thing there, it creates a discomfort in your, in your system. So there are these pleasant impressions that want us to go after certain things and these unpleasant impressions that want us to resist those things. And the mind is constantly vacillating between, you know, craving for something and, and resisting something else. And subconsciously, that's been happening to us all our lives. What I was talking to you earlier about me wanting to subscribe to a certain way of of chasing the American dream was also uh, an outcome of some subconscious pattern forming, subconscious condition. I'd seen something, I thought that was cool and now I wanted that. I didn't really know that I wanted that, but it just felt right somehow. It's like when you have a, a rose tinted glasses and you look at the world, everything appears pink. You know, so real mind shift or real coming back to yourself is just getting off those glasses. But how do you really do that? I mean, not in our school, not in our colleges ever have we been taught to manage our own mind, to, to get, to scrub our, you know, this, this debilitating impressions from our nervous system. And for me, it was the most 
precious learning that ah over a period of time it's this this breathwork is removing these impressions the memories still remain you know it's it doesn't mean i i don't remember certain things the joyful or painful memories are still there but they probably no longer have the negative charge or that iron grip that they had on my system um you know, at one point in time. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. Uh, there's other techniques that people have used to deal with post-traumatic stress. Um, and most people describe the same kind of thing when it's successful. It's not like it removes the memory as much as it, it pulls the intensity away from the memory and it pulls the power of the memory. Um, I had one person who told me it was kind of like going from a vivid color picture to more of a sepia, you know, it just, it was, still there. It just didn't have quite the same impact. They could recall it, tell you all about it. It just didn't grip them the same. Right. It's like going back to the coffee example from being addicted to coffee. Like I used to at one point in time to wanting to enjoy it at will. If it's there, I enjoy it. If it's not there, it doesn't you know, make me miserable. Mm-hmm. And something like that, when you extrapolate to the larger life, you know, it, so freeing it just brings so much freedom and it just brings so much comfort you feel so at ease all the time every time that then thriving happens naturally mm-hmm. you know i thought i was thriving i thought that i was i was working on wall street i was thriving i thought when i had my you know big bonus i was thriving i thought when i met you know the, the right person you know in my relationship i thought i was thriving when I, I was, I had a wrong notion of what thriving is or was, you know, I thought when you felt that things were going your way, it's, it's thriving. But when I really understood this whole mechanism of how we are constantly tossed around by the, the, the conditioning of our own mind and our definition of thriving is also defined by someone else. You know, it's a very different experience whether you're really thriving or is that that's something that's, you know, that you you responding or reacting because the world is expecting you to do it in a certain way. Yeah. So an interesting at your uh, one piece of your story is now that you you're uh, more you've been involved in uh, a much more of a passion business of artisanal chocolate. And, and in some ways it feels, you know, like it's not like uh, I'm not talking to you when you're sitting on the mountaintop, hiding out in the cave, only doing your breathing, right? I mean, it's not like you haven't gone, okay, how can I be involved and what can I do? And how can I look towards success? It's, it feels the same way instead of the drive to go grab your cup of coffee. It's the, can I enjoy the process that I'm in and this, this success? Yeah. And all that is an experience, not that as a, as a concept or not that as something I want to do because that's what brings, I mean, things are written about it also, like there are tons of books that are about enjoying the journey, but, but there's a different joy when, when that is your own experience. Mm -hmm. It's coming from the depth of your own being versus something that, oh yeah, I should enjoy the journey and hence I should do this and I should do that. So kind of, you know, experiencing this whole thing as a happening rather than, than pursuing or rather than doing. Because when you have to do, there's an effort. When it's happening, it's so natural and so organic. So when you come from that space, when, when you have tasted that, that, that peace and calm of, of connecting with yourself, then life becomes a game. Then there is, you know, you, you, you come from the point of view of, I want, I want, I want, what can I do for others? What can I... Of course, that doesn't mean I, I just give up everything, but what can I, while being in the world, while enjoying everything, while going after everything, can I also create some impact? Can I also contribute in a small way that can make it count? All this led to your book. And before we run out of time, just talk a little bit about it. Tell me about your book, what it's about, and then we want to talk about how people can find it. Sure. So it's my book on a wing and a prayer. It's a brutally honest account of my whole journey that we briefly talked about in the last 20 minutes 
over the last 20 years. My trials and tribulations, my resistance, my reluctance to trying something new. Of course, it starts with 9-11. It was a pivotal trigger. But then kind of getting in my own way, if you will, you know, not wanting to try these things, try breath work, meditation, and then kind of getting on it, exploring it, um, struggling with it, but eventually sticking with it and, and, and coming out on the other side uh, to, to, to having, uh, you know, emerge a more integrated version of my own self. In that some ways, I, there's a survival, you know, you go from, you have to survive in order to thrive. And, and that, so you start the book off with how you survived, right? And then how you walk through that process to, to thriving, to finding a better thriving life. Exactly. Exactly. It, yes. You could say it's my journey of understanding what thriving really means. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, you kind of toss that title out because it's your book. So, you know, the title is easy to roll off your tongue, but just for me to be clear, it's on a wing and a prayer for anybody who's listening on a wing and a prayer is the name of the book. Um, it's right now it's up for pre-order. Um, and so I, I've already pre-ordered it and, uh, I, I recommended others do the same. So how can people find that book? What's the best place to link up with that? There's a link to the book uh, on my website, my first name, last name, kushalchoksi.com. Uh, you can pre-order it from Amazon or Barnes and Nobles directly also. Um, but if you want to read a little more about what the book is, there is some information about it on my website. That's great. I'll put the links in the show notes so people can take a look at it and learn more. Kushal, thank you so much for being here and sharing your story. I mean, I, I know there's the tough thing about these things is we have to stir up those difficult moments of life in order to get past it. And this is certainly a, a, a difficult and here already I'm hearing so much about the 20th anniversary and all that. So I know that it's even more live for you, but um, you've taken that and, and moved it to a place of, of finding a new way in your own life. And uh, so I celebrate that with you, but uh, thank you so much for sharing uh, all of that story. Thank you for having me and giving me the opportunity to talk to you. And again, kusholchoksi.com, and I'll have the links for that in the show notes. So uh, please check that out and uh, look for a book on thriving. Thanks for being here. listening to the Thrivology podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thrivology.com or at thrivologymagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T H R I V E O L O G Y. It's your life. Time to live it.